Good afternoon. So good to see many of you today. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Psalm chapter 9. Psalm chapter 9. Oftentimes in life, when trouble comes our way, one of the first things we as Christians forget or neglect is to pray to God, let alone praise God. The reasons are simple. Sometimes we look to the circumstances at hand more than we look to God or fear the problem more than we fear God. We think that the problem is bigger than God. Other times we rely on ourselves in the problem more than we depend on God, don't we? We attempt to solve whatever situation with our own hands, with our own strengths. We make ourselves our own gods. Furthermore, oftentimes we ultimately lack faith, although hard to admit, we don't actually believe that God can come through. So Martin Lloyd-Jones writes in his book, Spiritual Depression, uh, that the ultimate cause of all spiritual depression is in fact unbelief. We don't believe God actually knows or cares or whether he'll actually do anything about the afflictions we experience. We ask ourselves, right, would God really intervene in my marital problems? Does God really care about the struggles of my singleness? What can God do about my addictions, my difficult work situation, the coldness in my spiritual devotion and disciplines? We would never admit it, that we are deists of any sorts, but our actions, our heart postures, and our responses to hardship would show that we don't truly rely on God. But countless times in Scripture, it is in these very moments we are commanded by the Bible to trust in Him. James 5, verse 13, for example, says, Is anyone among you suffering? Then he must pray. Is anyone cheerful? He is to sing praises. Psalm 62, 8 says, Trust in Him at all times. Pour out your heart before Him. God is a refuge for us. 1 Thessalonians 5, 18, In everything, give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. So, the question for us this afternoon is, how do you praise and pray to God when afflictions come your way? In our passage this afternoon, uh, the author David models for us how to pray to God in times of trouble. We're continuing our intermittent series, Summer in the Psalms, where we hope to cover 10 chapters of the Psalms each summer. And I've been encouraging us as the founding members of NCBC to set up precedents for the generations of NCBCers to follow, to read through the entire book of Psalms each summer. And if you still have not yet started, you have seven to eight days, including today, to meet the challenge. Uh, just read 18 to 22 chapters each day for the next week, and you can be caught up. And I'm sure, I guarantee you, I promise you, you will be encouraged and blessed. Amen? Uh, to give you some context regarding Psalm 9, we know that this psalm was a poem set to music as it is indicated in the heading to the choir master. It also says, according to Muth Laban, uh, which is a phrase that is unclear to many biblical scholars. Some believe the word refers to a tune, others to an instrument on which the song was played. 
Some associate the title with the phrase, the death of a son, or the death of a champion. Some say it refers to Goliath. Some say it refers to Absalom. Simply, any explanation is debatable. Hence, you see the untranslated Hebrew word, muthleben. Uh, What's of more certainty and significance, however, is that although in the Hebrew and English translations, Psalm 9 and Psalm 10 are separate individual psalms, the Greek and Latin traditions have typically uh, seen Psalm 9 and 10 as a single unified poem. The reason there is a strong case for the unity of these psalms in seeing that Psalm 10 doesn't have a heading. If you look at Psalm 10, there's no heading there, right? And in the way, both psalms are structured uh, to complement each other and also the main themes of the entire book of Psalms. So Psalm 9 is a psalm of praise and Psalm 10 a psalm of lament. But perhaps the biggest evidence for its unity is that Psalm 9 and Psalm 10 work as one long two-part acrostic poem in the, the original language in which the alternating lines begins with the successive letters of the Hebrew alphabet. Well, the reason why I share these uh, literary and structural details is in hopes that it will encourage us to dig deeper to understand the meaning of these psalms and how the intricacies of God's Word helps us as believers to mine for its treasures, to read it more thoroughly, to meditate on it more deeply than merely just a superficial meaning so that through the Word we can grow and mature as believers and followers of Christ. Yes, certainly, Uh, In its initial reading, uh, Psalm 9 is the first direct psalm of praise in the book of Psalms, as one commentator notes. But upon considering it further, upon reading it a couple more times, we realize that this psalm of praise is so much more than just a simple psalm of worship to God. In its context, with its details in mind, you can find that the psalm is not a simple psalm of praise, but a psalm of praise in the midst of deep and dire trouble. It is an encouraging example of the Christian faith, of how one ought to praise God even in life's devastating circumstances. What to petition God when it seems the enemy isn't letting up, and why we ought to have confidence in God even when suffering surrounds. Can I also point out how relevant and helpful this psalm is in this specific time in light of what's going on around the world? In going over it with your community groups this week, a number of you uh, shared with me what an encouraging reminder Psalm 9 is. And brothers and sisters, let me remind you today from the word that although the troubles of this world are many, in God we can have hope and confidence. Amen? So from Psalm 9, I want to share with you seven ways to praise and petition God in times of trouble. The natural break in the text is a helpful turn. You'll see that verses 1 through 12 are about praising God, and then there is a drastic shift in verse 13 in which David petitions God. So here's the outline so you can follow. Point number one, praise God with resolve, verses one and two. Point number two, praise God for future deliverance, verses three through five. Point number three, praise God the sovereign king, verses six through ten. Point number four, praise God together, verses 11 through 12. Point number five, petition for God's grace, verses 13 and 14. Point number six, petition God's righteous judgment, verses 15 through 18. And point number seven, petition God's glory, the last two verses, 19 and 20. 
Praise God with resolve. Praise God for future deliverance. Praise God the sovereign king. Praise God together. Petition for God's grace, for God's righteous judgment, and for God's glory. If there is any of you here today struggling to pray to God or worship God, burdened by so much going on in your life and around the world, I pray today's message will bless you and strengthen you and remind you of God's love and care for you. And I pray that you'll be instructed to go to God in praise and petition, even in seemingly hopeless situations, to God's glory and for your joy and for your edification. So let's look to the passage now. Please follow along with your Bibles open as I read and preach from Psalm chapter 9. It says this. To the choir master, according to Muth Laban, a psalm of David. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount all of your wonderful deeds. I will be glad and exult in you. I will sing praises to your name, O Most High. When my enemies turn back, they stumble and perish before your presence. For you have maintained my just cause. You have sat on the throne giving righteous judgment. You have rebuked the nations. You have made the wicked perish. You have blotted out their names forever and ever. The enemy came to an end in everlasting ruins. Their cities you rooted out. The very memory of them has perished. But the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for justice. And he judges the world with righteousness. He judges the peoples with uprightness. The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed. A stronghold in times of trouble. And those who know your name put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Sing praises to the Lord who sits enthroned in Zion. Tell among the peoples his deeds. For he who avenges blood is mindful of them. He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. Be gracious to me, O Lord. See my affliction from those who hate me. O you who lift up from the gates of death, that I may recount all your praises, that in the gates of the daughter of Zion I may rejoice in your salvation. The nations have sunk in the pit that they made. In the net that they hid, their own foot has been caught. The Lord has made himself known. He has executed judgment. The wicked are snatched in the work of their own hands. Higianan, Selah. The wicked shall return to Sheol, all the nations that forget God. For the needy shall not always be forgotten, and the hope of the poor shall not perish forever. Arise, O Lord. Let not men prevail. Let the nations be judged before you. Put them in fear, O Lord. Let the nations know that they are but men. Selah. How do we pray to God in times of trouble? Point number one, praise God with resolve from verses one to two. Look with me to those verses. It says this, again, I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount all your wonderful deeds. I will be glad and exalt in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. From the start of the psalm, David begins, or perhaps continues, with the full-throated praise of God from Psalm 8. Except in Psalm 9, David's worship isn't an explosion of praise resulting from marveling at God's creation, the moon and the stars. But David's praise is seemingly different in this psalm. Read it carefully, and you'll be able to tell the tone is entirely different. So let's consider the what, why, when, and the how of David's praising God. Uh, The when of David's praise is the most obvious, isn't it? In verses 1 and 2, David's praise is anticipatory. In the English translation, the grammar clearly shows the future tense. I will give thanks. I will recount. 
I will be glad and exult in you. I will sing praises to your name. Well, what is David saying he will praise God for? Two main things. God's actions and his person. His wonderful deeds in the second part of verse 1. I will recount all your wonderful deeds. And his name in verse 2. I will be glad and exalt in you. I will sing praises to your name, O Most High. His wonderful deeds refer namely to God's mighty acts in creation and in redemptive history. And David is vowing to bear witness to the awesome, wonderful, and great works of God. The way God delivered the Israelites from slavery. The way God led his people into the promised land. The way God delivered David from his enemies, Goliath, Saul, Absalom, and the countless armies he fought. And David is also anticipating God's future deliverance regarding his current conflict. And of course, God's wonderful deeds cannot be separated with God's character, with who God is. As mentioned in last week's sermon, God's name, Yahweh, capital L-O-R-D, is mentioned here again in verse 1, isn't it? David is giving thanks and singing praises to Yahweh, the self-existing, the most high, the most glorious, the most majestic, always and forever, eternal creator and the Lord I am. We also learn how David sets his heart and mind to praise this wonderful God, don't we? David says in verse 1, I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. The psalmist's worship of God isn't merely lip service, you see. It isn't half-hearted praise, you see. It's whole-hearted adoration from the totality of the psalmist's heart. From the center of David's moral decision-making and trust, David resolves to praise God. Amen? In addition, you see how David praises God with gladness in verse 2. I will be glad and exult in you. David says, no matter what my situation may be, I find gladness and happiness and joy and contentment in you. Makes sense, doesn't it? Even when you are going through some of the most roughest times in life, to know that someone is with you, that someone loves you, that someone cares for you, that someone uh, uh, prays for you, and to ultimately know that God is with you, to know that your church family is with you, is a huge encouragement and the reason for gladness, is it not? And David says, David resolves to say, I will be glad in you. Now, the why, the why of why David resolves to praise God this way is the main lesson of this psalm. You see that David is not praising God because his life is going just amazing. David is not giving thanks to God because his life is free of worries and troubles and anxieties. David is not singing praises to God most high because his life is free of obstacles, you see. Verse 3 clues us in that David is surrounded by his enemies. It says, when my enemies turn back, which means currently that is not the case. His enemies are currently on the offense. Verse 4 hints, David is falsely accused. Verses 5 through 7 assumes the wicked is currently winning. Verse 12 shows the enemy is murderous. Verse 13 tells us David is afflicted. And verse 18 reveals that David feels, at the moment at least, that he is needy and he is forgotten. But, yet, nevertheless, David resolves to praise God. He says, I will give thanks. 
He says, I will be glad. He says, I will sing praises to the God Most High. Not for the things he has already received. Rather, David is praising God in faith. Do you see that? Brothers and sisters, do you resolve to praise God when the circumstances of life seems to be bleak? Martin Lloyd-Jones says again, our danger is to submit ourselves to feelings and to allow them to dictate us, to govern and to master us and to control the whole of our lives. But just as David exemplifies for us, even from the first verses of this psalm, when trouble times come, I want to encourage you, brothers and sisters, don't rely on your feelings. Don't rely on your circumstances. Don't trust in your own strength and power and your own works or your own merits. Resolve to remember who He is and what He has done over and over and over again. Lloyd-Jones says again in the same book, Go directly to Him and seek His face. As the little child who is miserable and unhappy because somebody else has taken or broken his toy, runs to his father or mother, so if you and I find ourselves afflicted by this condition, there is only one thing to do, and it is to go to Him. If you seek the Lord Jesus Christ and find Him, there is no need to worry about your happiness and your joy. He is our joy and our happiness, even as He is our peace. He is life. He is everything. So avoid the incitements and the temptations of Satan to give feelings this great prominence at the center. Instead, put at the center the only one who has the right to be there, the Lord of glory, who so loved you that he went to the cross and bore the punishment and the shame of your sins and died for you. Seek him, seek his face, and all other things shall be added unto you. Close quote, Martin Lloyd-Jones. So brothers and sisters, do you resolve to praise God with your whole heart when at the moment God doesn't deliver you from the troubles or give you what you want? When life storms come your way, when news of tragedy or pain comes, do you praise God for what He has done in your life already, for who He is and who He has been and who He will continue to be forever? Amen? And this moves us to our next point. How do you praise God in dire days? Point number two, praise God for future deliverance, verses three through six. Resolving to praise God by recounting who He is and what He has done in the past allows us to remember that God, who is faithful in all His ways, although in the present, although in the now, things may seem dark and desperate, He will ultimately deliver us. Amen? Look at verses three through five. When my enemies turn back, they stumble and perish before your presence. For you have maintained my just cause. You have sat on the throne giving righteous judgment. You have rebuked the nations. You have made the wicked perish. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. The enemy came to an end in an everlasting ruins. Their cities you rooted out. The very memory of them has perished. Again, these verses are exactly the reasons why the psalmist resolves to praise God in verses 1 and 2, you see. And the interesting insight in this psalm is that the psalmist uses the perfect verb forms to describe how Yahweh's activity of judgment and deliverance is already decided but awaiting enforcement in the future. Notice how the grammar shows us that. Verse 3, when my enemies turn back, they stumble and perish before your presence. For you have maintained my just cause. You have sat on the throne giving righteous judgment. You have rebuked the nations. You have made the wicked perish. You have blotted out their names forever and ever. 
See, the truth is, the reality is, the enemies have not yet turned back. They have not yet stumbled or perished. But David is certain of God and what he will do in the future. Amen? In God's righteous judgment, no remains of them in the future. No memory of them forever and ever. Hallelujah. David is relying on God's righteous judgment, brothers and sisters. David is sure of God's promise in Exodus 34, 7 and Numbers 14, 18 that by no means will God leave the guilty unpunished. David was confident that God will judge his enemies justly, that God would execute righteous punishment to the guilty. But here's a bit of a curveball when David says in verse 4, you have maintained my just cause. What does that mean? David doesn't say maintain your just cause. David says the enemies falsely accuse me. He says to God, you know my innocence. You justify my right and my cause. That's how it's phrased in the original language. So wait a minute now. Where did David gain such confidence? How did David uh, conjure up such assurance? Wasn't David running for his life for the fear of his life? Didn't he commit adultery and murder? Didn't he refer and associate himself with the poor and afflicted and needy? So how is David, in this moment of affliction and suffering, and feeling needy and poor and oppressed, so bold as to speak of his rights in such a state? And how may we, what can we learn as Christians, finding such confidence that the Lord find us just in our causes? so that we will not also be swept up with the guilty. How can we be confident as David was a sinner, a poor, oppressed, and needy man being pursued by his enemies? How can we also have that kind of confidence? The answer is in the next point, point number three. How do you praise God when your heart is troubled? Praise God, the sovereign king, verses 7 through 10. Look at me to those verses. It says, But the Lord sits enthroned forever, He has established his throne for justice. And he judges the world with righteousness. He judges the peoples with uprightness. The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. And those who know your name put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. The phrase, the Lord sits enthroned forever, is repeated also in verse 4, is it not? David is showing us the reason in which he can be resolute and confident in the promise of future deliverance. Don't miss the impact of the repetition. Don't miss the force of this psalm in that phrase. In our troubled times, in our dire days, we can surrender from our meaningless attempts to save ourselves. We can be liberated from our fears and our anxieties. We can give thanks, and we can be glad, and we can sing praises to God Most High. Because why? Because He sits enthroned in heaven as the sovereign king. Amen? Amen. Brothers and sisters, Yahweh, our king, reigns today as the king of kings. Yahweh, our king, rules over the universe. Yahweh, our king, is the hegemon over all nations and all peoples. There is no competition, not even close. That's why Psalm 86.6 says, There is none like you among the gods. There is none who can do what you do. Amen? Unlike other earthly rulers, this king doesn't abandon his people. This king doesn't make rash decisions. This king doesn't abuse his powers. The end of verse 7 and verse 8 
tells us he has established his throne for justice. What comforting words in light of all that's going on around the world, is it not? And he judges the world with righteousness, verse 8 says, and he judges the peoples with uprightness. Brothers and sisters, we don't have to worry. His judgments will be off, nor biased, nor misinformed, nor too harsh or too soft, nor too early or too late. Psalm 711 tells us ever so explicitly and plainly, God is a righteous judge. In his court, he is not wrong. Not only that, in his universal court, he is always and forever all-knowing and all-benevolent. Look at verse 9 through 10. It says, the Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. And those who know your name put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Brothers and sisters, commit these verses, verses 9 and 10, to memory. Memorize these glorious promises. The sovereign king and the righteous judge is a stronghold for the oppressed. A stronghold in times of trouble. He is the fortified fortress. He is the strong tower. He is a safe refuge. This is the truth of God according to Proverbs 18.10 which says, The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous man runs into it and they are safe. Amen? The truth of the matter is, when life's afflictions hunt you down, when it seems all the world has abandoned you and are deaf to your beck and call, when it seems there is no rescue, there is a stronghold for the oppressed. There is a stronghold in times of trouble. And the promise of Psalm 910 is a powerful truth. No feelings. No circumstances, no world leader, no government, no military power, no Taliban can thwart. And those who know your name put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Amen? Pastor Josh Manley, a pastor in Ras al requested this morning again on Twitter, may pulpits be filled today with prayers for the church in Afghanistan as she faces extraordinary pressure, threats, and uncertainty. I know at times when so much is going on around the world in multiple successions, the ongoing pandemic, the earthquake in Haiti, Hurricane Henry, and all, all the other things that are going on, we can easily feel so detached and overwhelmed. But let me direct your attention for a few moments to the unspeakable things that are happening in Afghanistan right now. Uh, some military personnel who are there, who have toured multiple times there, are saying that this situation is the worst they've ever experienced in their entire military careers. That it is an utterly horrendous and hopeless situation. And I pray, may we, the Church of Jesus Christ, not turn a blind eye. May Christians not stop lifting up Christian churches and believers there. If you have not read the articles, if you have not seen the pictures and videos... I want to encourage you today, read, look, weep, and intercede that those who know his name put their trust in him. And for those who trust in the Lord, for the Lord to not forsake those who seek him. Amen? Pray, as Pastor Josh Manley writes in his article on Nine Marks, for physical protection and provision. Pray for spiritual provision. And pray for gospel advance. Pastor Josh writes, every church leader in that area of the world who has emailed me or texted me has asked that we would pray for the Lord to strengthen them in their faith, that they would stay strong in the Lord who is the sovereign king. As one leader put it, 
pray for me to be strong in my faith. It's really hard to stay here right now. Let's lift them up in prayer. Amen? May the prayers for the oppressed, the afflicted, and the needy around the world be continually lifted up from Southern Montgomery County, from New Covenant Baptist Church. Amen? To our sovereign king who sits enthroned forever, who judges the world with righteousness. Pray for them in our city. Pray for them around the world. Pray for them in your private prayers, in your discipling meetings, in your community groups, that the gospel of Jesus Christ will be proclaimed and heard in their years. Amen? And this moves us to our next point. How do you praise when it's hard to pray alone? Point number four, praise God together. Verses 11 and 12. Look with me there. Sing praises to the Lord who sits enthroned in Zion. Tell among the peoples his deeds. For he who avenges blood is mindful of them. He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. You see, David is inviting other believers to praise the Lord with him. The phrase, sing praises to the Lord, is in plural form. He's inviting others to join him in praise while he himself is afflicted. Tell among the peoples his deeds. What he's saying is, remind one another of God's great works. You see, brothers and sisters, when as Christians we are weak and we are weary, what is the God-ordained way to remind ourselves of God's promises? Is it to take a retreat? Is it to take some time off to figure out things on our own? Or is it ever appropriate to take some time away from God, from church? Generally speaking, isolation is a sure way to get swallowed up by the enemy. That's why Proverbs 18.1 says, The one who has isolated himself seeks his own desires. He rejects all sound judgment. Genesis 2.18 says, The Lord God said, It is not good for man to be alone. Ecclesiastes 4, 9 through 10 says, Two people are better than one, for they can help each other succeed. If one person falls, the other can reach out and help, but someone who falls alone is in real trouble. Ecclesiastes 4, 12 says, A person standing alone can be attacked and defeated, but two can stand back to back and conquer. Three are even better. For a tri-braided cord is not easily broken. In Hebrews 10, 24 through 25, which has been kind of our theme verse as we've been meeting through the pandemic. And let us consider how we may spur one another towards love and good deeds. Not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. Amen? There are so many one another commands in scripture that I cannot possibly recount them all. But understand, these verses are there in Scripture for a reason. That we alone, by ourselves, cannot fulfill any of these commands. The purposes of God are commanded to be fulfilled as the church, not as a single individual Christian. In evangelicalism, in the recent 50 years or so, especially in the West, there has been a rise of consumer Christianity, as you all know. The mantra of these churches have been, meet the needs of the people. No different than McDonald's, have it your way. But nowhere in Scripture, brothers and sisters, are God's people commanded to worship God whatever way they want. It's always God's way. Furthermore, you may have heard recently of the phenomenon of deconstruction uh, these days. Recently, a former megachurch pastor who was very famously known, who used to pastor a church 15 to 20 minutes from here, uh, inflamed the internet verse with his five-week deconstruction starter pack. Basically, it's a course on how you leave the Christian faith and reframe your story. 
I read a few days ago after much criticism, he took his site down. But the point is, a mega church pastor who wrote multiple Christian bestsellers and was a famous conference speaker divorcing his wife, affirming sinful, unbiblical lifestyles. Deconstruction of faith doesn't just happen overnight. When someone leaves the church, takes some time off from church to figure things out, and they no longer submit themselves under the word of God, under the lordship of Christ. They no longer submit themselves under the authority of the church leadership. They no longer subject themselves to the accountability of fellow church members. Their faith will be eaten up by the enemy within a matter of weeks, within a matter of months. This is what it means when scripture warns in 1 Peter 5, 8, be sober-minded, be alert, Your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion, looking for anyone and everyone he can devour. When you leave the fellowship of the gospel, when you leave the authority and accountability of the church body, be sure, be warned that the enemy will indeed swallow us up. This is why it is so spiritually harmful not to gather with your church regularly. This is why Jonathan Lehman argues there is no such thing, biblically speaking, as a virtual church. This is why this season of the pandemic is so difficult for Christians and churches that continue to foster virtual substitutes for in-person church gatherings. That's why it has been such a blessing for our young church and new church to have continued to meet in person this past year and why this meeting space is such a gift from God. Amen? That's why we've been praying to bring us those who have been unchurched and de-churched around this area, especially who have been struggling in their faith in the pandemic. And that's why those of you who are coming to gather with us for service after months or even years of not going to church regularly is such an answer to prayer and also a reminder of God's goodness and faithfulness in your life. May we not take this gathering lightly. May we commit ourselves to this gathering and to one another. May we prioritize our Sunday services in difficult and busy seasons of our lives. This gathering is more than about just you and just me. It is what is commanded in Scripture. Amen? After all, Psalm 9 is a corporate hymn for God's people to the choir master for congregational singing and worship, is it not? Moving on then, much shorter points coming up. How does the psalmist model for us what we ought to petition God in the midst of difficult days? Point number five, petition for God's grace. Verses 13 and 14. That's what you see in verses 13 and 14. Look with me there. Be gracious to me, O Lord. See my affliction from those who hate me. O you who lift up from the gates of death, that I may recount all your praises. That in the gates of the daughter of Zion, I may rejoice in your salvation. You see, David prays for God's grace. Verse 13 takes a turn in the psalm where David begins to express his distresses. The second portion of the psalm helps us to frame David's praise in the first 12 verses in the right perspective as David's praises were indeed of a man who was deeply afflicted. He prays, see my affliction from those who hate me. His affliction was deep and he pleads God to save him from the gates of death. It's really interesting if you really think about it. And it's because David isn't just praying for God to save his life from physical death. David is actually petitioning for more. So look at the end of verse 13 and 14, which says, O you who lift me up from the gates of death, that I may recount all your praises, that in the gates of the daughter of Zion I may rejoice 
in your salvation. What David is saying is, he says, Lift me up from the gates of death, that I may recount all your praises, that in the gates of the daughter of Zion I may rejoice in your salvation. The gates of the daughter of Zion is an obvious pointing forward to the heavenly city, the new heaven and the new earth, when all of God's elect, the chosen people of God, will be saved. See, David is not only praying for mercy and deliverance of his physical body. David is petitioning for God's grace. Now, grace in the Bible refers to a gift that we don't deserve. And David explicitly says that I may rejoice in your salvation. David was ultimately praying for the salvation of his soul. That the redemptive plan of God, that the covenant of God would continue on through him. So, brothers and sisters... I've been holding back until this moment, waiting for these verses to share with you that all of this, all of what I just read and shared only makes sense. Praising God with resolve, praising God for future deliverance, praising God the sovereign king, praising God together with generations past, with generations present, and generations future as the church is only possible because of God's gracious gift to us in his one and only son, Jesus Christ who was sent to us for the forgiveness of our sins and for our redemption. This is the good news of Jesus Christ. It's the best news you will ever hear, that the majestic creator of the universe created us to know his amazing grace and love. Though while we distrusted his word, though while we continually rebelled against him and made ourselves our own gods, though while we were yet sinners and enemies of God, he sent Jesus the Christ to die for us as a substitute on our behalf on the cross, to pay for the punishment of our sins. What we would have paid in eternal hell. But Jesus didn't remain dead. On the third day, Jesus rose from death, conquering sin, Satan, and death forever. And he ascended into heaven as the enthroned sovereign king of the universe. And still today, he reigns and he rules all nations and all peoples right now. And what we see in our brokenness as divided, hopeless, and meaningless, and lost people of this world, He aims to restore, He aims to sanctify, and He aims to save by grace. That whosoever would repent and believe that Jesus Christ is Savior and Lord would have new life here on earth and a glorious eternal life when He returns. If you're not a Christian here today, we welcome you. Thank you so much for being here. You are our answer to prayer. We've been praying for you. And since you are here, let me ask you the all-important question. Who or what do you worship, follow, or rely on for your soul? Who or what do you represent? Have you not figured out yet that yourself should not be the answer? That people around you are not the answer, they are not enough? Have you realized that more money, more power, more intellect can't be the answer to the suffering and pain of this world and the gladness in this world. Even if it was, how do you obtain it? For those of you who are talented enough to obtain power, money, riches, intellect, and all, all the, the goodly, worldly riches, the question for you is, how do you sustain it? Friend, only Jesus is certain. Only Jesus is guaranteed. He alone is the stronghold for the oppressed. He alone is the stronghold in times of trouble. No other God has come. In the history of humanity, no other God has come. Only Christ is the one who knows your name. So put your trust in Him alone. Only Christ 
is the one who will not forsake you when you seek him. He has proven himself for over thousands of years all around the world that he is safe and he is sure and good and that he is the Savior. If you want to know more about how to follow Jesus, talk to me at the end of service at the back door. I'll be standing right there. Or talk to someone next to you after the service. They will be happy to share with you how to follow Christ. Point number six, petition God's righteous judgment. Verses 15 through 18. Look at verses uh, 15 through 18. It says this. The nations have sunk in the pit that they have made. In the net that they have hid, their own foot has been caught. The Lord has made himself known. He has executed judgment. The wicked are snared in the work of their own hands. Higianon, Selah. The wicked shall return to Sheol, all the nations that forget God. For the needy shall not always be forgotten, and the hope of the poor shall not perish forever. Brothers and sisters, let's pray with David and all the saints who have gone before us the petition of those verses. Let's pray. Verse 15 will be true of Afghanistan, of North Korea, of America if it continues in our moral degeneration and all other nations who continue to rebel against God and reject Yahweh our King. Let's pray. Uh, Verses 16 through 17 will be true, that the Lord will make himself known among his peoples, that when Jesus Christ returns the second time, not as Savior only, but as the righteous judge of the world, all the world will know that Jesus is the King of kings and Lord of lords. Let's pray for a swift and awful judgment will be executed to the evil and the wicked men and women of the world. Amen. Let's pray that until that day, the nations will not forget God. That according to verse 18, that the needy shall not always be forgotten. That the hope of the poor shall not perish forever. And finally, point number seven. Let's petition for God's glory. Verses 19 and 20. It says this. Arise, O Lord. Let not men prevail. Let the nations be judged before you. Put them in fear, O Lord. Let the nations know that they are but men. Selah. These verses are a glorious end to this psalm. It doesn't end with God destroying all the men who are wicked and evil. Certainly that will happen. Certainly that will be the wicked men's end when when Jesus comes as a righteous judge. But this petition of the psalmist is that man will not prevail, but rather that God would prevail. You get what this psalmist is praying? Yahweh, our king, sovereign king, righteous judge, David prays, arise. Put them in fear. Let them know they are but men. May they know your majesty. May they know how you are mindful of them. May they know that you care for them. May they know you alone are God. Brothers and sisters in Christ, No matter how dark your days may be in the present, no matter how crazy and troubling this world may be, may we never forget the wondrous mystery of our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ. May we cry out with eager expectation, Come, Lord Jesus, come. Let's pray.